This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. It's funny, I can shave a hundred people in a day like nothing, and I always nick myself. I guess that's why my business goes so well. <laughs> the freedom of a business. You know, freedom is a mentality, really. You think free, you are free. A free mentality is what defines my state of being, you see. It's what's given me the ability to carve out a life for myself. Liberty. When you think about that, of course, is my being sold as a slave to Mr. Middleton in Liberty, Missouri. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it all worked out for me. It's all no problem. My old master, he, uh, he didn't see no more use for me after he took me from my hometown of Virginia. So he sold me at the general store for a meal and a rifle, dim-witted as he is. That's all right, though, because Mr. Middleton, he gave me my first in, because he parted with me. He was convinced by his Mormon brethren to part with me a little bit. And he sold me to uh, Captain Andrew Jackson Smith of the Mormon Battalion. <laughs> See, he, he needed a personal servant to find his way through the, the Mormon battalion, taking it west, 1,500 miles through Santa Fe and then into San Diego for the conquest of California. <laughs> he needed a personal servant such as myself, and uh, Mr. Middleton knew how good I was. So he decided to make me, him and me a good damn team. And we did. I always remember there was this one time when uh, Smith and I we wanted to take some of the fine brandy from the medicine mixings that uh, the troops had. And when they started to find out, uh, they, 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 were, they were freaking out a little bit. And, and uh, Mr. Smith, he says, oh, oh, it was Peter Biggs, but don't worry. I'll take very good care of him. Don't you worry. I guess he took care of me if uh, that meant emptying the bottle between the two of us. <laughs> See, him and me, me and him made a pretty good team. Such, such so that I would say he was my first business partner, you know? Because he trusted my word. And that was what started off for his business. I mean, I was stealing business, but, you know. Words, liberty, mentality. Those are all the things that got me out of being a slave in every sense of the word. And of course... It did it so much so that when we got to Los Angeles, largest Mexican city in California, he said, oh, Peter, you've been so good to me, you know. Just take your freedom. That ain't no problem. Uh, that's how, at least how it went in my head. Uh, and, and, and it's because we made such good business partners that he knew he could trust me for whatever he needed, freedom or not. And so when I made it down to Los Angeles, uh, I noticed that it was uh, held by the U.S. Army, you know, and everyone was sitting down waiting to see what would happen. Uh, but not me, no, sir. <laughs> I made sure to know everyone who's anyone. Of course, uh, the Americans didn't take too much to uh, Mr. Step and Fetch It, but you know who did? It was the Californians, especially Refugio. Ooh, my sweet Refugio. <laughs> And I kicked it off real well. And, and what was good about that is that not only did I have 
a nice little lady with me. I had an end to the Californians. And that was how I got my first business going. See, because uh, Refugio. <laughs> Refugio. She, uh, she got me connected to Donia Ramona, or as many people called her, uh, Miss Fremont, for her little liaison with Mr. John C. Fremont, the captain. But we won't get into that too much now, will we? So she, she was holding this little ball one night, and she needed a master of ceremonies. And she didn't want to upset none of her clientele. So uh, she, she came up to me. She said, Peter, would you mind being El Bastionero? Well, of course. <laughs> and so uh, the band's playing their first waltz, and I take her hand. Everything's going great. Until, of course, uh, that loudmouth, poor excuse of a southerner, Alex Bell... He comes in, guns are blazing, literally, and, and he says, Now, Donnie Ramona, would you rather take the hand of a nigger instead of the hand of a white man? <laughs> you should have seen the look in her eyes. I could have cut glass. <laughs> and it really kind of did, because she said, Well, yes, sir, of course I would. And we kept on dancing. Uh, once again, guns blazing, because... Alec pulls out his Colt pistol, you know, starts shooting at me. I guess I got to leave at that point. So I'm, I'm waving goodbye to Donia Ramona, bullets flying past me, you know, and uh, hide out for a few days. That's the right thing to do at that point. And, uh, huh. the best part about it is that a few days later I come back, and you know what? They miss me. <laughs> and that was when I knew that I put my foot into the door of this community so well, they couldn't get by without me. Hell, other communities couldn't get by without me. Take uh, San Francisco, for instance. Juana, Juana, our little one. She loves the story about the cats. So um, I got this man here. Uh, I'm, I'm fixing him up a little bit, and he's talking about how all his clients up in San Francisco, well, they got a rat problem. And, and, and he's talking about that. And I say, oh, well, we got the opposite problem here in Los Angeles, mister. Because we got too many cats, not enough rats. And so I stop him right there. I ask him, now, where's the steamers? Where are they going up to San Francisco? When they're going? Who's running them? He tells me all that. And then I take every cat I can by hook or crook. <laughs> and I take them and I ship them up to San Francisco, send them all his clientele. And <laughs> the rats didn't know what hit them. Literally. <laughs> And so, and so I got a, uh, what, what do you call it, a monopoly. They didn't like that word monopoly, but I can name any price I want, and that's what matters, you know, uh, $10, 15 $20 a piece. And there was nothing they could do about it. And that was my first, uh, that was my first big business is what I would used to, uh, used to call it, you know. Because all of my business down here in Los Angeles, my word well, that was what spread up there, so they could trust me, even though they didn't even know me. And so with all this renown, of course, I go up to uh, Bella Union. That's the hotel that, uh, that the, all, the, all the fancy Americans they're going to when they're visiting. I go up, I talk to the clients there, and I come in with my best at-your-service smile. <laughs> and I say, I say, excuse me, pretty please, I say it really nicely. I say, 
Could I just start up a little barbershop business right next to your place? It ain't going to hurt you none, ain't cutting into nothing, and I'm just going to service your clientele. How's that sound? And they were all right with it, so I made the New Orleans Saloon. <sighs> it's all mine, ain't it? <laughs> and so I, I made it, uh, I wanted to make it nice and close to home, you know what I mean? And so I, 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 would, I would do everything they want, you know. I would shave, shampoo, boot blacking, everything you can think of that can make you nice and comfortable, laundry, errands, anything you need. And they started to trust me real well. Yes, they did. Hmm. And see, it's, it's, it's this barbershop business. I heard about it first when I was in Virginia, uh, back where I'm from. And, and there, everybody knows about the free black barber in Aerotown. We're talking, we're talking Thaddeus Harris, George Henry, Thomas Pierce, Jacob Riddick, uh, James Penn, Robert Campbell. And now... Peter Biggs. <laughs> See, we're trailblazers of our time. We are the people. Of course, I'm, I'm a little more free than them. But, but, but we're, we're the people who are setting the path for our people. We're the people of our people. I always found that important. Because we found a way to be equal with this man right here. Of course, they don't see it that way, you know. They'll be calling me names, won't spit on me, all that sort of business. But at the end of the day, got the same liberty as they do, no matter what. Uh, but no matter what, I mean, it doesn't all work that way. And so you got to find a way to, uh, got to find a way to, to connect with them a little bit. And, and I remember with one client um, from the Californians, they were talking about the evil black Republicans oh. and, how, and how we were always caught in trouble. And so what I said is, I'm going to make a joke out of it. I'm going to call myself the black Democrat. <laughs> because if my client's a Democrat, why don't I be one too? And so I'm finding a way to connect with them, make me feel a little lower for them, you know. Hmm. Make them feel comfortable, nice and welcome here. And that's all right. That's all all right with me. Because at the end of the day, they're just going to keep talking and talk and make business. And that's why they're here. And, uh, you know, who's, who's winning at the end of the day here? Let's <laughs> try it again with this. I remember back in 45... Frederick Douglass, he said, it's easy, but he acts is a noble. And I don't, I never really got that. Because if I'm giving a service to my community, if I'm helping these people out, and at the same time helping my people out, feeding my daughter, feeding my wife, now, sir, what's wrong with that? Of course, uh, when he brings it up like that, you know, it talks about the business of it and why, you know, it might go into a decline. And yes, we are in a decline right now, but that's all right. We're always on the up and up. It's because of those foreigners that are coming in trying to cut into my business, you know. And, and so, of course, we got we to gotta cut our prices in half. It's, you know, accommodate 
But at the end of the day, this man trusts me still. He trusts me to do the thing that I've always been doing. And what's not noble about that? Now the only thing I can ask is that that man cutting into my business, he just pays respect to it, you know? Because these new cats, they ain't know nothing about, about, about this town. About, about the balls that used to go on, about the Californians, you know. They don't know nothing about that. They just need to have a form of respect for this. Especially that damn impertinent waiter over at Baker's Restaurant. Matter of fact, I should get going about that. Show my peace in my mind. Welcome to UC Santa Barbara's first episode, the inaugural episode of the Lost Voices series. We're all super excited about it. I'm John Greathouse. You can follow me on Twitter, at John Greathouse. I want to introduce um, a few folks here, but before I do, I just want to thank all the, the, the people, the deans of several departments. This collaboration um, involved the Black Studies Department, the Theater Department, of course, the History Department, which was well represented, as well as my department, uh, the engineering department. And just want to thank all the, all the senior people, as well as the people on the ground that did the work. We have here our actor, Peter Biggs. Uh, Jared Webb is a senior here at UC Santa Barbara. As you can tell, he's a gifted, talented actor. He's getting his undergraduate degree in um, acting, excuse me, in fine arts, uh, with an acting concentration uh, in, uh, from the theater department, of course. He's been in a bunch of productions over the years. I had the, the joy of watching him. My wife and I got to go see him do a performance of Vanity Fair. You guys really should be going to your, you should be going to your theater here at Santa Barbara. It's really, really good, and Jared did a great job. Alongside him is Dan Lynch. Uh, oh, I'm just going to read your, let me read your bio from your phone. We'll, we'll, I just sent it to you like an hour ago. We'll sorry. edit that part. All of a sudden, I'll be sitting there with the phone, and everybody will be like, what happened? So Dan is a Ph.D. historian um, of American West. He's currently writing a book on masculinity, politics, and race in early Los Angeles. His works appeared in the California History as well as the Western Historical Quarterly, excuse me, and in the companion volume of the 2015 Autry National Center Exhibition, Empire of Liberty, the Civil War, and the West. Uh, He has taught uh, at many different levels, junior high, high school, college, uh, right now, he's working with UCLA as a liaison with um, the outreach pro- your outreach program. He's also teaching um, at uh, junior high and high school level. So he's really the perfect person to come talk to us today because Peter Biggs was included in his dissertation when he was writing about um, uh, African-American um, pioneers as well as the Southerners that came into California, invaded California, um, and, and how, they, how they mingled and mixed with the Latino population that was already here. So, so we really appreciate Dan's been very helpful in this collaboration, making sure that we've been historically as accurate as we could be. I want to thank someone who's not on the stage, but she's sitting right there. Uh, Laura Voison george is earning her PhD here at UC Santa Barbara, and I cannot overstate the impact she's had on this, on this program, on this performance, um, and she's really not just, not, not, not that she, I mean, she did a fantastic job with what, what you just saw, but she's really influenced the direction that this program is taking, the Lost Voices uh, is going to have an arc that it would not have if Laura had not become involved, and I'll, I will forever be appreciative of that. Um, and she's going to be helping us next quarter with, uh, with another speaker that I'm super excited about. 
And lastly, uh, not leastly, I, wanna, I want to mention our sponsors because we can't do this without our sponsor support. Appfolio is here tonight. They're sponsoring uh, tonight's event. They're a Santa Barbara-based company with roots at UC Santa Barbara, all the way from the founders down to uh, many of the employees. So they're a pillar of our community. Um, diversity is very important to, to Appfolio, and they were very happy to underwrite this program which we appreciate. And then I do have an overarching uh, sponsor that I'd be remiss if I didn't mention, Upfront Ventures. Upfront is a leading venture capital firm in uh, Southern California. You've heard of many of the companies that they've been involved with, including Ring and Maker Studios, which Disney purchased for a ton of money. Um, they're also in Appeal and Invoca, two local companies, as well as um, Birds. You have them to blame or, uh, for all the bird, um, bird vehicles that you see around here. Uh, or thank, depending on uh, whether you appreciate those or not. They're a wonderful venture firm, and when I mentioned to them what I was doing with the Lost Voices series, with Laura's help and others, they immediately made a multi-year commitment to this program. So this is the first of what we hope will be many episodes that we're bringing back the voices of entrepreneurs from the past. Women, uh, hopefully we can, we can find um, great African-American men, um, Hispanic men, Asian people that just didn't get their, in their day, they just didn't get their due. But we're going to try to give them a little bit of their due in our day. Let's welcome these young, fine gentlemen. So I want to start with Jared because we need to know the rest of the story. So you mentioned this wonderful waiter. Um, and as you walked off stage, you were going to an event. Tell us about that event and what might have happened at that event. Well, um, well, we had a lot of talks about kind of where we wanted this piece to be in the terms of Peter Biggs' life. You know, if it's too early, what can we include? If it's too late, where's he at? Right. Um, and in a way, this almost is too late because we, we kind of decided on this being the day and the place where uh, he lost his life. And so that, I thought that it was really interesting, A, that we got to do that because um, this, uh, like, we, we, see, we, we see because he would want to talk about all of the highs of his life. Right. But at this point, his, his business is in decline, you know. Right. Um, Those immigrants, right? <laughs> exactly. And it was really interesting. There's only, like, a little blurb about it, but it, it really told a lot to me about the, the immigrant situation of, like, how, how they're cutting into his barbershop business. Um, but, but yeah, so his business is on the decline. I'd like to believe he next day would have just found something else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, um, but, but he didn't get that chance. But, but, but give us a little bit more detail on what happens to him in that dinner. Um, I don't think most people know what happens. Well, I, well we don't know for I, sure, right? Yeah. yeah so, uh, I'll make the, something up. Well, okay. <laughs> that's no, what stories always do. No, I was just looking for the gory details. Did uh, he get a knife yeah, in no, the he chest? Yeah, w- no, he was murdered. Uh, there was a murder trial about it. He was knifed in the chest by a, a cook at a baker's restaurant, yep. yeah. uh, and you allude to having a conflict with him. Uh, mm. One of the memoirs has a more colorful depiction of the event, saying that Peter Biggs uh, was criticizing the waiter for how he was being served, and mm. he wasn't being served mm. in the proper mm. way. Because he was a gentleman. A gentleman, He yeah. was a gentleman. He was a ma- master of ceremonies, another memoirist character. Characterization of him, yep. and um, yeah, he was someone that was kind of a master of the way things were done, of manners, of uh, the way people should behave at parties, and that kind of thing. And so, according to that one memoirist's account, uh, he was crit- critical of the way the waiter was serving him. We don't know, you know, the details of what they were actually fighting about, right, of course, but right. we do know that he was murdered, and we know that the murder was acquitted uh, of the crime. And so, uh, according to press reports, it was a fight that broke out. 
Uh, and so that might be why the murder was acquitted, because it was considered to be uh, the consequence of a brawl. Mm-hmm. Right, you know, defense or, or something. Right, yeah. And uh, he was, he was well-liked in terms of how the uh, obituaries talked about him mm-hmm. uh, as a colorful character and as uh, someone that was a, a fixture in the Los Angeles social scene. Which is one of the reasons why we, we, you know, we had a lot of great people to select from. Um, and we chose Peter um, for a variety of reasons, and we'll get into a few of those. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but one reason for me personally was he, he was part of that fabric, part of that community, but we didn't, most people don't know anything about him, right? Yeah. So it's mm-hmm. almost like you're looking back through time, but you're not seeing really the whole picture. And what's interesting about that, too, is that, that he was such a big name in his community at that time and kind of lived to be a legend for a while, but that dissipated really quickly, mm-hmm. you know, which is so interesting to me that, that he, he, he lived so largely and then kind of went away quietly. Yeah, well, I mean, you know this world. History is written by the victors, right? Whatever the victors define as, mm. in that term. Yeah. In, in, that, in that age. Now, our job, we can go back and try to rewrite some of that history. Before we do that, though, I want to ask you both of you. So we know that he died. We know that he died a brutal death. Um, maybe it was based on honor, maybe not. What do you think his legacy, what do you think he would have wanted his legacy to be? I know this is pure conjecture. It's not mm-hmm. historical fact, but... You know a bit about his personality. You did a lot of research. If he were on the stage, what do you think he would say? I think, I think he's already even starting to get at that where it's, and like you just talked about with manners, you know, he, he was a person, he, he was a people's person, you know. He was, he was serving his community, but I think it was to the end of, of himself. He is, he is the man who made everything out of nothing, you know. Mm-hmm. He's, he's the... Literally. Literally, yeah. Few people you know. have that story mm-hmm. of, you know, you're in slavery, you become, you become free, and then you make a life for yourself. Yeah. You, you start in slavery 1,500 miles away. Right. And then you become the barber of this great town that is now one of the largest cities in right. the world. <laughs> right. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, think, I think he was making his name as, as a legend in that way already. And, and, and like I was kind of just mentioning, too, is that I think... If this barbershop business were to decline, he'd find something else. You know, he'd always find something else. It was the cats, yeah, you know, very it was the barbers. Yeah. yeah, and so he would always be making something. Or running messages yeah. or some of the other side jobs he Anything. did. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting. I think, I mean, especially after watching your performance, I, I really think that uh, entrepreneurship and his, his ability to reinvent himself is really how he'd want, want to be remembered. Um, and it's interesting. That's one of the... Um, one of the interesting commentaries about him by someone who knew him in Missouri as a slave and then met him again in Los Angeles as a free man, mm-hmm. uh, who was the, um, let's see now, it's the wife of Benjamin Hayes, Judge Benjamin Hayes. She wrote back to her sister in Missouri, and she said, you'll never guess who I ran into, uh, um, in the shape of Peter Biggs. And she uses the phrase, in the shape of. He didn't use that last name as a slave. He said, Reuben Middle- she oh. says, Reuben Middleton in the shape of Peter Biggs. Mm-hmm. So he chose that name. He refashioned himself, and she described him as being married to a Spanish lady, uh, as being the prominent barber in town. And the way she talked about him as is someone who reinvented himself very mm-hmm. successfully. And I think he was incredibly talented at that. And um, one of the questions you asked me earlier was, uh, is there anyone else you can think of who uh, has a similar trajectory in L.A. as an entrepreneur? And Mm -hmm. the only other person that comes to mind is Biddy Mason, who's another uh, enslaved person who Mm -hmm. wins her freedom in Los Angeles and and has a very successful career as a midwife. But once again, I mean, both cases, uh, creating a career out of nothing in a way that other entrepreneurs in L.A. at that time, they had something. They had resources they could invest in real estate or they had uh, business connections or they had something that enabled them to start some kind of empire here. But Biggs is really uh, incredible in the way he's able to 
uh, invent himself uh, from scratch without those resources? Well, I think it's a story, I mean, I'm going to overgeneralize, but it's a story of America. So you had all the, the folks that would come from Europe or from wherever came, came or even from China on the, on the West Coast. And it's like going to a new school, right? You can become mm-hmm. a new person. Like nobody really knows you from the past. You, your backstory is your backstory, and it's kind of, or it could be whatever you create for your backstory. And, and I think that's a key point about immigration or migration is it gives people that chance to start over. Mm-hmm. And, and people like Peter Biggs or Biddy really take advantage of that opportunity. And what's so interesting is that it, I, I totally agree that it is the story of America, but it's interesting that it's about a person who was not welcome in his America. Right. You know, it was someone who had all of his adversities and made them his attributes. So, yep. No, and I think, and we'll get to, uh, uh, before we're done, I want to talk a little bit about how California might have been different from Virginia a bit, maybe not, not entirely. Before, before we get to that, um, I, I want to ask both of you. So uh, I don't know if we'll start with, let's, it doesn't matter. I'll start with Dan. Okay. We're together here. Start, started with Jared last time. What drew you, I know that you have a broader study. Your study isn't mm-hmm. about Peter Biggs. But what drew you to include Peter Biggs and to expand? You wrote a quite an extensive paper on Peter outside of your dissertation. So what kind of drew you to that? And then I, I want to hear a little bit from you because we had options. There's a lot of other people yeah. we could have covered, and you really, you really took to them. So yeah. I'd love to hear, Dan, your thoughts. Yeah, so my dissertation was on um, the affinity and the political alliance between Southerners, uh, white American men who moved out from the American South, and Californios, the uh, landowning uh, rancheros of California. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought that alliance was really interesting because of uh, the racial dynamics at work and uh, the politics of the time. Um, but when I was researching that, one thing that would struck me was looking through the uh, Los Angeles newspapers were Peter Biggs' advertisements. Mm-hmm. And he, he often advertises with his name, very large, very prominent, and he talks about how it's a southern... Yeah, this is me. He was selling himself uh, and talking about how he was a southern barber, so that got my attention. And then, of course... You were kind of like, who's this Peter Biggs guy? <laughs> yeah, at page after page of flipping through these, you know, these old newspapers, he's in there. And then he pops up in the memoirs, too. And the memoirs were written late 19th century, at a time when the lost cause mythology was really taking hold of the mm. white American mm. uh, imagination. Mm. And partly, I you know, dismissed him as uh, a caricature of those memoirists that were uh, trying to play up this uh, loyal slave stereotype. Got it. Uh, and the most outrageous claim that they made about him was that he was arrested for celebrating Lincoln's assassination. Right. But when I stumbled across an article which said that that basically was true, then I started to, to think about, okay, wait a minute, who is this guy? Right. Mm-hmm. What can we find out about the real figure here and how he fits into this landscape? Uh, and, and I found out more details about him, the fact that he married uh, a local Latina woman um, and he had a daughter with her uh, that added to his complexity. And so... Um, I started to think about this figure, and I met uh, Kendra Field, who's a professor of uh, African-American studies at Tufts University when I was at the Huntington Library, and I told her about Peter Biggs, and her expertise is on specifically African-Americans in the West. Mine was on uh, early Los Angeles at this time. So we had a great collaboration, I thought, uh, putting together our, uh, our various you know, knowledge bases to try our best to put together a profile of Peter Biggs. But it, one of the things we say in the article is that uh, – we cannot know the interior minds of right. this, this very complicated man. And I've been thinking all along that, uh, you know, partly that's kind of the expertise of an actor, actually, more so than the historian, to get into a character mm-hmm. like this mm-hmm. and to think about the interior mind in ways mm-hmm. that historians really aren't trained to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I was very excited and pleased to see your performance. It was really amazing. Thank you. Yeah. Um, well, it, I think I'm glad you started it with that because that really lays into what, I, what I, attracted me to this is that... Um, He's such a problematic figure 
in that way. Right. Uh, and I mean, coming at, like as an African American, I, I, I look to who, who, where can we get the strength that we need to, mm-hmm. uh, like our idols in the same way that we see these entrepreneurs that did get their time in history, you know. Um, and, and when you brought this character to me, this man, he, he, I was like, I want to root for him and I don't at the right. same time, right. you right. know. And, and what I think is really important about it is that no one ever sees themselves as the villain, you know, yep. and so no one ever sees what they do as, as wrong inherently. And so I, I, I think it's really interesting that he truly does believe in the black Democrat ideal, you know, and, and uh, that so much so that with the, with the Lincoln situation, um, there was something so interesting that gripped me about that um, in, in a weird way. And so I wanted to get into this guy's head, you know, I wanted to figure out what about him can have this this dichotomy living right. inside him, you know, where he was a slave and also has little empathy for the current slave. Right. Um, and so, so there, there was just something really enticing about trying to figure that much out. And and what I got to it is that yeah, he just he truly believes in everything he's done and that he's earned everything that he's gotten. And so he has the power to to believe that, you know. And and that's not to say that that is right. Right. But that is to say that he holds a power in himself that is worth analyzing. Yeah. And so I wanted to do that an- analysis. Well, I, mean, I just remember that conversation we had about it, and we were talking about other people, and you, mm-hmm. you were really, I mean, I knew you were going to do a great job just because, I, I, by the way, you embrace the complexity of his character. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, 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 there's a number of reasons why I thought he was interesting. I mean, he didn't start Facebook. He didn't, it's not, oh, you know, look at the incredible accomplishments. In that era, you didn't have those kind of incredible accomplishments. You, oh. But you had people that became pillars of the community. And I, I really like what you said earlier that I think he would have been astounded how quickly he was forgotten. Because in his day, he was a yeah. player, right? He was, yeah. <laughs> he was part of this big community, and everybody knew him, and they would invite him to, the, to their events and have him be the MC and things. And, I, and it's, it's interesting how, and sad in many ways, how, how quickly we do forget. Mm-hmm. But I also thought there were some good entrepreneurial messages for, for students that are grappling with their next stage in life, and that's, who am I? You know, am I the Southern Democrat? Yeah. Am I saying that just to get business? Like, am I, am I selling my soul for a right. buck? All of these things that you know he grappled with, either consciously or subconsciously. And, mm-hmm. and, and we're not here to say that we agree with the decisions he made, but I think it's still interesting, I think, for young people especially, to think about the decisions he made and, and think about how that's applicable to today. Because we're not former slaves that are making those kind of dramatic decisions, but we're all making decisions about our life. Exactly. And, 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 and to what extent do we want to compromise our authenticity to make money? Mm-hmm. So th- that was one thing I really enjoyed uh, about, the cus- about the character. Yeah. Uh, let's go ahead and take um, the first student's question. Hello. I was wondering if Peter Biggs played a big role in the question of black citizenship, and if so, what this role was. Um, interesting, very interesting question. Uh, black citizenship, well, um, yeah, it's not something he's laying full claim to. It's interesting, like his relationship with voting, for example. Uh, he's someone who um, would not have been able to vote uh, throughout his lifetime, but there is one story about him uh, shaving and cutting the hair of, of presumably white customers so that they could vote more than one time. So he was apparently involved in the political process. He branded himself as a black Democrat. Mm-hmm. Um, and to what extent was that trying to build his customer base and what extent is, are his, those are his real beliefs? I guess we'll never know. We can, we can conjecture about it. But uh, he did accept uh, a subservient status and he did kind of accept the um, the dominance of Southern-style white supremacy in Los Angeles. And so that meant not kind of claiming 
equal uh, equal citizenship rights with right. whites. Right. But um, I think you can see that as a strategic decision on his part. Um, but um, yeah, it's something that uh, I'm sure he grappled with. I'm sure he, he had arguments with with other African Americans in town, mm-hmm. like Biddy Mason, for example. Yeah, I would love to know whether they we we were asking ourselves that. Did he know Biddy? To mm-hmm. what extent? Did they they must have been on oh, each they other. Did. Yeah, and he we know one of the records we found was that. Um, uh, Robert Owens, who was another pillar of the black community, he lent Peter but I, Biggs. But, but I would argue of the community, right? Because the community mm-hmm. was so small at that point yeah. that just to be a pillar of the black community, you were a pillar of the larger I'm not trying to be pedantic, but mm-hmm. but I think they were pillars of the community at that time, don't you think? Oh, all, I mean, all three the Pueblo of, the of Los Angeles. Yeah. Yeah, all, yeah in, in their I own way. things? Or? Well, no, but Biddy Mason and, and the Owenses, they did kind of form the kernel of what became the early black community when it grew into a sizable mm-hmm. uh, community. Later on down the road, they were kind of seen as the founding members, right. not bigs. Right. Uh, oh, and, okay. and so they had the, um, yeah, the, uh, the first AME church was, was hosted in their homes, and, uh, and they were um, financially uh, at the center of things. But Robert Owens, one of these men who's going to be regarded as the founder of the community, he does lend bigs. Um, supply, what does he do? He takes in Peter Biggs' barber supplies and gives him a loan, basically. Uh, and that, that's, that document is in uh, court papers. So we know that he did have relationship with at least Robert Owens. Mm-hmm. Um, and he lived very close to, to um, Biddy Mason as well. So they certainly mm-hmm. knew each that other. Too, right? Yeah. So I'd like to explore with both of you, um, and it's right along the lines of your, your research, this, this melding pot that, that uh, Pueblos of Los Angeles was at that time. And you married, um, his, your character married Refugio, Refugio um, who was maybe not the most prominent family, but a, but a, but a respectable family, mm-hmm. a respected family. Respected, yeah. Talk a little bit about how that, that might have played into your ability to be successful, to become, because you came alone, your buddy mm-hmm. split, right? Your buddy, in mm-hmm. quotes. Right. The one person you really knew well left, and mm-hmm. you were kind of on your own. Um, I think one thing that was important is that... Uh, when coming into a new community like this, um, and I think it's not even changed too much today as it has in that time, but it's just that how do you find a way to connect to people, you right, know? Right, And And, I mean, this is my extrapolation on it, um, so I don't want to call it as fact, but, like, the fact that they would both be dark-skinned yeah, I right. think is plays a big role into it, that there is a level of trust um, in that, and that. That was at least in my head while thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... So that trust uh, with Refugio and then that connection thereafter with the rest of the Californians who, uh, like, like, like I kind of said, it, um, even though this was owned by, or the, the town was run by the U.S. Army, it is a Mexican city, mm-hmm. you know? And so I think that was a powerful connection to have, regardless of whatever Refugio's status might have been. Mm-hmm. And it seems like there truly was a, it wasn't a marriage of convenience. It seems like, I mean, I'm speaking as a historian, mm-hmm. correct me if I'm wrong, <laughs> but it seems like they truly had a relationship where loving had children. Any thoughts on that melding or his particular marriage? No, I think you're on to something with both of them being people of color in uh, this period of imperial conquest when America is taking over this land. Peter Biggs is a man of color who's also an American. So he's, he's kind of perfectly placed to be an inter- intermediary in that sense. Yeah. Uh, he's someone that uh, the local Latino population can relate to, also someone that knows American culture inside and out. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and he kind of solidifies that role as an intermediary by marrying Refugio, I think. Mm-hmm. And then he even became a translator after that, right? Mm-hmm. If I remember correctly, there was something sourcing that. And so that 
that was another level of intermediary where he would between the Americans, California. Right, right. So a new Cal, a new American California would come in, and he could mm-hmm. he could help. He could he could be really straddling both of those communities. Exactly, right? one foot in both doors. Yeah. Do Do you feel that um, that it was? I don't want to use the word easier because it wasn't easy, but relative terms, would would you have had a better shot as an African American? business person in California in the 1850s, 1860s than you would have in Virginia. Well, Virginia, of course, that's slavery, but it's it maybe even a free state. Or is that just a myth? Am I just myth, adding no, no. mythology to how great California is? No, I think that's true. In the gold rush, gold rush era, there were niches to be filled by, by various people of color. Uh, and and African-Americans actually were well-placed to fill certain niches because you had a disproportionate number of American men out here, white American men. And they were not accustomed to doing women's work, for example, um, and also enslaved people's work. Uh, And so African-Americans could fulfill some of those support roles and Mm -hmm. actually uh, make a good living doing it, considering you have the the, the gold as a plenty, not as much in L.A. as in the Bay Area, but still, I mean, it's part of the same general economy. And so there are niches to be filled. And I think Peter Biggs sees that. And Mm -hmm. he's someone who's very good at looking for opportunities. I mean, the cat story is an interesting one where it's like, you know, the, the memoirist paints a picture of him as being someone who he sees a need for something, supply and demand, he fills it, right? Yeah, right. And so he has experience uh, looking after the intimate needs of white men as a slave, and so he uses that expertise to build a business. Let, let's talk a little bit about um, something that wasn't obvious to me. doesn't mean it won't be obvious to everyone else, but w- the whole idea that one of the few jobs that a free uh, African-American man could have in that era was a barber. And so what are, maybe expose it a little bit on what some of those reasons were. It's a good question. Well, I think once again, it's, it's, uh, especially if you were uh, catering to a white clientele, uh, that was seen as a service that was desirable. And there was some permissiveness for entrepreneurial um, uh, slaves, sometimes people that would still be, of course, in slavery and sending their wages back to their master. Right. Richmond in particular is the area we explored in that article. But you had a lot of slaves who were uh, working as barbers, sending most of the money back to their master, keeping some as well. Uh, and uh, that, that their entrepreneurial instincts were unleashed in this kind of narrow kind right. of Controlled, arena. Right. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, if you leave the South and now all of a sudden you're in a free state of California, then your world is more open to you to actually own your own business and right. to mm-hmm. keep all of your profits. Right? Well, but what about the concept, and again, if I'm overstating things, stop me, um, because I'm not an expert and I'm not a historian. But I did read an article about one of the reasons why barbering became uh, an acceptable uh, for African American men, was they wanted that person with a na- with a knife to your neck to be free, or at least to not be really angry at you, or to be really <laughs> angry in general. So that was one theory of just why a lot of these small communities would have a free man who oh, was an African American. Okay, I see what you're saying. I, I didn't state at. my question clearly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so they have yes. Uh, southern cities have populations of free barbers and enslaved barbers. It's kind of a combination of both. Um, but yeah, there's a tension there, which is really interesting. With there's actually a Herman Melville story where he talks yes, about yes, um, yeah. uh, having a, someone, uh, an enslaved person, shaving him, and the kind of the tension of that. That's worth reading, by the way. Yeah. It's, it's, it don't give away what's going on in the story. It's a, it's a, it's, a, it's a, almost like a mystery. I mean, yeah. there's a bit of a you don't quite know what's happening until the end. Yeah. So there is a, there's an interesting tension there, but there is something of you know. Well, one of the questions that came up about um, honor. Maybe I should wait for that for a student to ask about it. But um, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Let's talk about it. Oh, okay. Honor's a big part of people. Yeah, yeah. Story. So I think there's something with uh, white Southern men 
um, who uh, wants a, an African-American man to be their confidant. Um, and that relates to one of the things he engaged in, according to some of the memoirs, which was introducing um, Southern white men to local women and yeah. exchanging of money that might have taken place yep. related to that. So, you know, the white men have, uh, especially in the South, there's this notion of honor, which has to do with your public reputation, not really who you really are or what you really do. It's what people see of you, right? Mm-hmm. So if you have someone, a contact who can you know, navigate the underworld for you or help you with that, right. um, that's one of the things that... Um, you know, a barber would be well positioned to do because the conversation is so much a part of, you know, getting your hair cut, of course, and getting a shave uh, and having someone who um, you could talk to, you could show your true self to in some ways, sure. uh, but also who could help you navigate some of the, you know, the, the darker areas of, of the social world that you don't want everyone else to know about. Right. You know, all of those things, I think, factor in here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'd like to talk a little bit about how you discover these lost voices. You mentioned the collaboration you, you, that you did, and that was a really a good, good article. It's very interesting, and actually, what's what got me intrigued about Peter Biggs. But what is your process in general when you're? I mean, I, I can imagine it's difficult because you're kind of looking through straws and mm-hmm. you're not seeing the whole picture. You're seeing just what, you know, an advertisement or a letter or something. But you can talk a little bit about that process. Well, yeah, the process is you're just going through page after page of documents and you're trying to get a grip on like big trends that are occurring throughout history. But certain characters, certain events, you know, they kind of come out at you while you're looking at these things. Mm-hmm. And Peter Biggs is one of those figures where you just see him pop up again and again and it starts to get more, um, your, your mind starts to gravitate towards them more, you know, because of just the compelling, interesting story that's there. Yeah, again, I imagine there's got to be moments or days even when you're like, ah, oh, am I going down the right path? Am mm-hmm. I reading the right sets of articles or the right old newspapers? And then as you say, that just stalled leaning back a little bit going, I keep seeing this impresario guy. Who is this guy? <laughs> yeah. And then you can kind of focus on that. But but getting getting back to this idea of straws, I thought this was interesting that, um, because you're limited as to what contemporaneous firsthand research is going to be available to you or documentation is going to be available mm-hmm. to you. Um, and, and one thing, um, Dan, that you mentioned is uh, in your paper, this Horace, Horace Bell character mm-hmm. um, and, and how he's, he, he referred to Peter as the El Bastonero or uh, my Spanish is terrible, sorry, master of ceremonies mm-hmm. at a ball. And so that kind of a data point might have been really insignificant to Peter in real life, but it becomes significant historically because it's one of the few data points we have. Yeah. Did, mm-hmm. Do you think that was... That was a, 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 um, a persona that Peter embraced. Was it a self-referential thing that he came up with on his own? Or did the community see him that way? Uh, we don't really know. So, the only shard of evidence is that is that memoir and that label, unlike Black Democrat, which he advertised right. several times. We know in the that paper. that was something that he. Embraced. Yeah, so we don't really know. But I think it's. I think uh, Bell has uh, has been described as a characterist, a very good characterist who. who Paints these, you know, characters of different historical figures at that time, and um, he chooses to describe him in this way that's using a Spanish term and an English term, mm-hmm. master of ceremonies, which I don't think at this time was necessarily. Um, nowadays, I think it's associated with hip hop and African American culture more so than at the time. I think at the time it was more generalized, but he uses an English phrase and he uses um, a Spanish phrase for a dance leader, someone that would be. Mm. Um, 
the, uh, the person who was calling out dance routines uh, during an event like this. So I think he's acknowledging the kind of the uh, intermediary role that he plays in terms of being in this frontier town and having relationships with the local Latino population, but also the American population as well. Mm -hmm. That's kind of how I interpreted it. And I mean, not knowing, I kind of thought he was the kind of person that you would invite to a non, like in Santa Barbara, there's certain people that you invite to be the MC, right? To, mm -hmm. to, to do the auction or whatever. And, and they're good at it and they enjoy it. They have big personalities. I kind of pictured him as that sort of character. Like if yeah. you wanted to have a good party, like you'd invite Peter, right? Yeah. You'd want him there. Plus, yeah, I mean, he's a, he's a barber we already know, so he's got the gift of gab, you know? Right. He can just keep yeah. talking. Um, yeah. And that's the kind of guy you want having a party like that. Yeah, yeah. and, and you know, we don't, in our society today, understand or think about the history of barbershops because we get in and get out, right, it's as fast as you can. <laughs> but in the old days, it was, I mean, the barbershop quartet, right? It was actually a place where people played music, people sang. It was a meeting place. You could have your confidants there. Um, and so, yeah, you wouldn't, if you didn't have that gift of gab, you probably wouldn't have a ton of customers. We'll take the next student's question. The political context of Peter Beck's time was different, but personally, do you guys see an issue of entrepreneurs being underrepresented today? You want to take I can one? say yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, gosh. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it's, absolutely. It's 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 really interesting. I mean, I. I am an actor, so this is kind of a world that I've stepped into recently, more so than yep. than known about, like a historian or like working with entrepreneurship. But but reading through Biggs's stuff and how that was so far in the past and how it's so forgotten. Right. Right. It, yeah. I think it's. I think it's. Uh, you know, the the short answer is absolutely right. There's mm -hmm. there's a million issues, and we're trying to address them in the tech community. Um, it's really tough when you don't have a role model to look up to, and so we're trying to change yeah. that, and it'll change. Um, you know, I had Troy Carter, Lady Gaga's manager, on stage one point, and I asked him, "What's going to make? You know, what are your thoughts on making a change?" And he's like, "John, we just need more black billionaires." And I thought that was brilliant. I mean, it really, there's a, that's actually a deep statement in the sense of it'll solve itself. It's like if people can just look and say, "Yep, I can be like that person too and relate to that person." That's going to go. That doesn't mean we just sit around and wait for a couple more black billionaires, but. But there are things we can do in the short run to try to help people see that that's a path they can take right now. They don't have to wait. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I think that idea of wait, too, that's, that's really that's interesting. It can't. It, no. it just can't be there. And that was something that Peter Biggs was amazing right, at. Right. He did not wait for a single yeah, thing. Yeah, entrepreneurs don't wait. Right? Yeah. If the door's not open, I'm going to kick it open. Yeah, and I should say that you know, Robin Owens, who, was, who owned a livery stable, um, he's someone who did amass a lot of wealth, and his heirs were some of the wealthiest... Uh, people in Los Angeles and, and really uh, the backbone of uh, African-American community there in terms of charitable giving and uh, supporting the AME Church. Mm -hmm. So there were folks at this time who did succeed beyond what Peter Biggs was able to, uh, to, mm -hmm. to do. Um, Benny Mason is another one who right. married. Right. Th those two families can join there. So there were, um, there were success stories in this time. And L.A. was a place where um, African-Americans did see more success and more opportunity uh, than in the South, of course. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But at the same time, I mean, coming from my slightly less, uh, slightly objective perspective on this, once again from being really ignorant about all this, not knowing much about this until I worked on it, I never heard of those names. Right. Yeah. You right. Know? And, so and I bet you most of the people watching this around the world haven't heard of them either. Yeah. We're going to bring some of them on stage, but, um, but yeah, they're not names I knew, and I'm a student of entrepreneurship, so shame on me. <laughs> We're going to get the names out there. But let's talk a little bit about that, um, because... 
Peter's life in L.A. was kind of 1850s, 18, late 1860s, right? Biddy's, Biddy's continued on later. His was cut short. Do you, was there a dramatic change, do you think, Dan, in the, in the environment or, the, or the, the, the sort of social construct that would allow Biddy to be more successful than Peter in his day? Well, I think that, uh, you know, P- Peter Biggs was trying to, nav- he was trying to position himself as an intermediary between these groups. Um, now, Biddy Mason, she worked for a white Southerner, a doctor who Laura knows a lot about, uh, Dr. John S. Griffin. So she did, um, she did have that kind of respect for Southern whites, and that was kind of built in her mentality as well. But in terms of her work with the, uh, the first AME church and uh, the uh, black community formation that she was more directly involved in, I think uh, that in the long run proved to be a better entrepreneurial bet mm. uh, to really kind of uh, attach yourself to the black community in a more kind of full-throated way than Peter Biggs did. Mm. Peter Biggs, I think, was caught between forces. Yep. You know, early on, he comes in, there's this imperial zone where you have white Americans coming in, you have the Latino population of tension there. He's able to kind of stand between those two groups right. and this kind of this really interesting inter- inter- intermediary position. But later on, it becomes... Um, like in our article, we say it's, it's less of a multinational community and more of a multiracial community where a color line is much more strictly kind of yep. uh, uh, decided and it's harder to kind of navigate back and forth like he was able to do. And so the, the folks that really invested in the black community, they ended up doing better over time mm-hmm. uh, in terms of the Owenses and, and Mason. Um, so, you know, that's an interesting thing to look at. Um, while well, they're could, still but, serving the white community in some ways as customers, they were also right. really helping each other. Right. The community wasn't big enough that you could just be solely focused on, on, on one race. But, but to be fair to Peter, at one point when the census was taken and he was in L.A., there was like 12 African-Americans, mm-hmm. right? So he would have been a pretty poor entrepreneur if he had said, I'm only going to sell to the other <laughs> yeah. 11 African-Americans. Yeah. Right. Right. So, so I think Biddy had the advantage of a larger population and just more immigration from the South, more, more African-Americans to, to form bonds with or, or to have commerce with. Mm-hmm. And it would have been interesting to see if Peter would have, would have sold into that market a little bit more aggressively once that market was, was there. But it wasn't there in his, mm-hmm. most of his, his era. I mean, it was, it was coming online as, you know, in the late 1860s, but that was sort of at mm-hmm. the end of his trip. Well, those other entrepreneurs catered to whites and everyone, everyone else as well, too. Yep. But they also, they, they, they were more concerned with kind of strengthening the black community. And I think that was critical to their, right. um, the long-term um, success of, their, right. of okay. them, their businesses and just their survival. I mean, right. the fact that Biggs is killed, I think, might speak to the racial tension he ran up against with exactly. Latinos in particular. Right. Yeah. Well, and I joked about immigration um, earlier because it's, it's a topical issue now. But it's a, if when you think about it, in this country, again, and in most countries, but in this country particularly, because everyone you know, had to come from somewhere else, essentially, except for indigenous peoples, we, we've had to deal with this issue over and over. We don't seem to learn from it, but we, we've had to deal with this issue over and over again. So in, the, in, in, your, in your era, Peter, you're having to worry about some French guy who says he's from Paris and he's mm. trying to cut people's hair with his shtick and, and you've got other immigrants that are coming in and just basically charging lower prices and you're, you're, you're rightfully indignant about that because you feel like I helped create this community like why, how dare them come in and, and take my business mm-hmm. right it, I mean, it's, just, it's, similar, it's a similar issue that we're grappling with in this country today with, with immigrants mm-hmm. and that was why I really thought it was important um that last bit that i had um that i kind of worked with laura on um where it's 
but at least I hope that they can respect it. Yeah, um, right. Because I don't think that he was completely... I think he was... Whereas, whereas Owens and, and Biddy, they were, they were trying to strengthen and re-represent the, the African, African-American community, I feel like he was strengthening just the idea of entrepreneurship. Mm. And so he, I don't think he was necessarily against them coming as much as it was respect what this is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that... I mean, I think that I, I hope that's the case, yeah. and I think that's a healthier way to look at immigration. As opposed to just you know like stiff arming it yeah. or denying it or acting like it's not happening. Like figure out a way to productively bring those people in, and maybe maybe he could have had some one of those people be an, an intern or help them learn the business or something, <laughs> right? So so sort of taking advantage in quotes of, of of these new entrants in some way that they win and then you win as well. Yeah. So certainly something that Los Angeles had to had to deal with. Mm-hmm. Let's uh, take one more student question. Um, so speaking to Biggs' influence in his community and how, like the article mentioned, um, on stuff like elections, how influential do you think he was on, like in the lives of his clients in other areas? Influential how so? Uh, in what? In other areas of his clients' lives. Well, I think we, we mentioned a few things. I think he was a bridge between maybe new Southerners that came into, the, into mm-hmm. Los Angeles. They see the Southern Democrat. They were used to the African-American barber. That wasn't mm-hmm. something foreign to them. So in a way, it's kind of bringing a little bit of home. Like you called it the New Orleans the Saloon. New Orleans that wasn't yeah. an accident. Mm-hmm. So you were play, I think you were welcoming that group in, trying to bring them into the community. Mm-hmm. And Dan, as you mentioned, once they're in the chair, he's telling them, oh, you want to go eat over here? Yeah. You want to stay in that hotel? You want to... Yeah, so he's yeah. hooking them up, basically. Yeah. It's the idea of integration, I guess, into the community, and the idea that also... Um, that, that, yeah, he was not just a barber. Right. He would also boot black. He'd do laundry. He'd run any errand he could. Refugio, didn't she have a, um, a grocery yep. store, basically, mm-hmm. that, that would cater to everyone else for that? And so they, they, were trying to be, they were trying to support the community from every way they could, and possibly solely for the like, money, possibly. But I think it's really interesting that they found every outlet that but, they could find. But I'd like to believe, maybe it's just because I'm a diehard entrepreneur, I'd like to believe that for them to be successful in the long term, there had to be, it couldn't have just been a mercenary endeavor where right. money was the only driving yeah, factor. Yeah, I, don't think I just so don't think pe- people would find other places to get their hair cut and they'd find other places to buy food. Mm-hmm. So there had to be, there had to be some, gen- some authenticity and, into his shtick. It's got had to be. Yeah, so in the memoirs, they talk about him with such warmth. Mm. Uh, and that's true in the one uh, diary account we have, too, from the time period, where uh, Judge Benjamin Hayes uh, comes uh, into L.A. for the first time. He, he takes his mule up to the, the local saloon and, like, ties it up. And then he meets Peter Biggs, who he knew before in Missouri. Mm. And Peter Biggs, like, takes him in. He explains the lay of the land, you know. Mm-hmm. He, he takes him to a restaurant, and he tells him all about the society, um, and you get a sense there of this guy's personality is mm-hmm. that that's what he's selling too is that yep. he is he's inc- incredibly personable and uh, and relatable and someone that um, is able to reach various kinds of people and uh, and really make them feel at home and well, it sounds like he was what, what some people call a connector, right? Every, yeah. every community needs these connectors that will bring mm-hmm. new people in from, from outside the community and introduce them and just kind of help things flow, right? And, uh, some people just do it naturally, and I, I want to believe he just did it naturally. That was just part of his DNA. Mm-hmm. I think that was exactly part of his DNA, which is another reason that he did a barbershop more than anything else, is right. that he's able to talk social to these hub. people. It's a social hub. They can talk about anything, anything and everything. Right. You know? Safe that place. That comfort. Yeah, because, yeah, it, what, like you said, it's sort of a place where it's understood that, you know, it's confidential. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so last question for both of you. Um, 
it's, a, it's sort of an open-ended question, kind of a broad question. Mm -hmm. what, why do you think it's important to tell these lost voices stories, African-American women, folks that, um, that we don't really know? And what impact would you like for it to have on, on contemporary students today? Like I said, it's a big, broad question. But start if you want. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm a teacher. So I, t I teach, you know, U.S. history to high school students currently, but I've taught at different levels. But I always try to find small stories like this of interesting people who are like navigating power in interesting ways mm -hmm. and, you know, ask them like, is this an example of them resisting, you know, oppression that they're facing or are they using it to their own advantage? And you, these complicated stories like his where people are surviving um, and it, get, it, it shows you history from a different light than just big forces at work, you know, mm -hmm. uh, big laws that are changed or big presidential decisions or, um, or, or even the, the experience of people on the ground who are doing things that you would expect based on those larger narratives. Mm -hmm. When you look at people who are doing things that are a little bit outside of the box, so to speak, it gives you a different perspective on history and how you see people surviving, people trying new things, people trying new strategies. It gives you a sense of the, um, I don't know, the improvisational character of life that we all know is yeah. in the present, right. mm -hmm. but right. it's throughout time as well. And it gives you just a, a more kind of um, full sense of life at, at the time. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. I, I feel like my teaching yeah. style I incorporate, it's probably why I was attracted to this concept in the beginning. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like story is powerful and we can tell these stories that haven't been told before. Hopefully they'll live on and resonate. Mm -hmm. And coming from my history uh, behind all of this, I mean, I'm an actor. And, and so this, this wasn't something that I knew much about, but what I find interesting in my day-to-day -day life, um, and I'm sure you probably hear this from everyone that comes up here, but it's that everything is an entrepreneurial venture in the idea. Like, you are your own businessman yep. selling yourself yes. to whatever job you do, anything like that. And, I, and so then it's the same way for me being an actor, and that's why, that's why I, I bid into this project so much, is because when, when you brought this, this, this man to me, this character, it, he was an entrepreneur in, in every single way that he could. You know, he found everything, every quality about himself, and he made that sellable, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and and he, he took those, those disadvantages and he made them advantages, you know? He took the, the attributes that he had that people thought, like, that, that, that people would not want. They would not want. Right. And he made them something that people would want. Right. And I, I, I find that beautiful. I find that really beautiful. And so if that's, I guess, a takeaway in that way. Wow. I couldn't have said that better. I couldn't have said that. <laughs> that was fantastic. Um, and, I, and I just knew that this was going to work when I first met you. I really felt Thank that you. energy and that enthusiasm. And then when I read Dan's paper, it just felt like it was all going to come together. Wonderful and Laura paper. really made it happen. So thank you both. Really appreciate it. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.